Marvelites, you are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale, October 27, 2021. I am Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am Tucker Marcus. Uh, Tucker, this is it. This is the end of our spookyish month. Do we have one more name? Can you can you pull one name <laughs> from your... My rotten brain. Yeah, your rotten <laughs> um, brain. Luckily, there are actually a couple of suggestions here in our document. And... I liked a few of them. And then I saw one that I instantly went, that's our winner right there. And it's, <laughs> I love what a stretch it is. It's mummy's <laughs> pull <know>. list. <laughs> okay. And why did I like that one? One, because mummy doesn't sound anything like Marvel. Awesome. Two, because for uh, any listeners that we have in the UK, that sounds like a much weirder name than even a Halloween themed name might be. Uh, That's right. This is your your mother's pull list. Everybody, (laughs) this is what your moms are reading this week. (laughs) That's right. So welcome to mommy's pull list, folks. Oh, boy. I knew you were going to pick that one, too. Uh, Also, last week we had Catherine introducing the show, which I I didn't know we were going to have. And I heard it this morning as we're recording, which is Wonderful. That was a lot of fun. And then finally, we got to say happy birthday to producer Jasmine, who is celebrating her 42nd birthday, I think. (laughs) Just rocking it and rolling it in the Chicago, (laughs) currently giving me some deep looks over on our video chat. It was all worth it. And also, happy release week for Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, the video game. We don't really talk about games too much on here, but it's a a hoot and a holler. This episode comes out on release day, which I can say I've been playing the crap out of it, and I freaking love it. It is so well-written and well-put-together and full of deep cuts and nods to the comics and the lore. If you are a fan of the Guardians at all, you'll have to check it out. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Tucker, what are we talking about this week? Who's on the show? This week, we're chatting with Marvel Comics writer and one of those names that I think you're going to be hearing more and more and more from in the months and years ahead. It is Steve Orlando, who it has been announced will be jumping on board with Marauders coming up very soon, which is really exciting. And we've read one or two of his books recently, and we will be chatting with Steve about Green Goblin. And for those of you nerds who like the details, who like the deep cuts, holy cow, get ready. And not only that, get ready for like eight different circumstances and just chance moments where Ryan and Steve morph into the same human being and are like, oh, you like this thing? Oh my God, I can't believe it. I, I was, it was really, really fun. Great chat. Great to witness. So yeah, we're going to dive into Green Goblin with Steve Orlando. Yeah, he is a hoot and a holler. Um, that, was, that was a lot of fun. Green Goblin, man. That's a weird book. So weird. So, so great. Yeah. Glad we read it. It's I love when we get to do these, these books that we don't have as much experience with. It opens our eyes to new stuff. Just like what we want to do here on the show, open your eyes to some new stuff. The books that are out this week, we're going to give you our picks. We're going to tell you about all the other books that are out this week, hand out some awards, and we'll talk about what collections are on sale, what's on Marvel Unlimited, including the Infinity Comics, and so much more. And we'll do that with our first pick, which is Inferno number two. This is an event book. This is a standalone event, really. It's sort of on its own. There are no tie-ins, I think. But it feels 
so monumental and so important for the X-Men titles and the mutant society at large. And of course, it's written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. And I didn't realize at first that it was like 48 pages. It does a really interesting thing. The first like three or so pages are silent and it takes its time. It sets a lot of ambiance, mood, gives you a lot of scene setting and feeling to it, which I think is is great. They gave this book plenty of room to tell its story and really evoke the feelings and the emotions that you wanted to. At the core of it, there's a couple things going on. There is the future of Krakoan society. Right now, there are two seats on the quiet council, the ruling council of the mutant island that are empty. And so they kind of have to fill those. So that's a big thing. Then on the side, you also have Mystique in her pursuit to resurrect her wife, who could have been brought back much sooner, but her wife is the mutant Destiny, whose abilities as a precognitive mutant are very difficult for Magneto and Professor X and Moira McTaggart as sort of like the real rulers of Krakoa, if that's what they believe they are. And so having a precog around can throw a lot of issues into their plans. And so there's these two things, Mystique over here and then Professor X and Magneto over here. And so we really follow a lot of mystique in this issue. And then I will just say it, this issue, Destiny Returns, we get our the Destiny moment back. And I won't say much about it, but I was getting a little teary-eyed. Like it was very beautiful and sad and sweet and a little scary and intense. Stefano Caselli drawing one of the best sinisters. There's a panel of him laughing and his little mustache is upturned and it just terrific. I, I love Stefano Caselli's art. There's something about the way he draws like facial muscles, I guess all muscles and fabrics. Oh, hair. I, obviously, Stefano can draw pretty much everything and make it look good. But there are things as you, you look at the panels and you sort of see the way hair falls, certain lines that he draws in hair or clothing and the way it's styled. There's all that going on. Then we've got a whole bunch of other things with humans and relationships and some secrets and things going on behind the scenes. And everything is spiraling out of control. I will just say everything is spiraling out of control for everyone. And I don't want to say too much more. It's a great, great issue. It is beautiful. It is important, capital I. And if you have been reading the other mutant books, particularly Wolverine or X-Force, and you read this, especially by the end, you will do what I did and go, oh, right at the end. And it's so good. My pick this week goes to Daredevil number 35, which is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Stefano Landini with Francesco Mobili, colors by Marcio Meniz and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. I feel like this is a, a big issue in the same way that issue number 25 was a really big issue. This issue sort of reminded me of Escape from New York in a weird way. It felt like we are so dug in deep into a corner of New York City where bad stuff is going on, where people are writing crazy stuff on the marquee of the movie theater and like just sort of taking over 
we have Bullseye, we have Electra as Daredevil in here, and then of course we have big, big plans coming down the pipe with Kingpin and Devil's Reign. And there are big moves that happen in here. There's really unexpected, weird, cool stuff that goes on in here that I did not see coming. And I could go on for another hour just about the bold choice behind giving Electra the costume. Anyway, there are some really interesting twists and turns in this issue. If you've been following along, I am so happy to say that there is like so much more to come in this corner of the universe where, you know, just like in this issue, I all I want to do is sit in that the the movie theater of Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil and let it all play out in front of me because it's so, so good. Hell yeah. Last of our three picks of the week is Marauders issue number 25. We just talked about Marauders as it will uh, get a new writer with Steve Orlando with the annual coming in January and the new issues after that. Um, But we are still firing on all cylinders here with this book. I got to give a shout out to the main cover by Russell Dodderman. Just bonkers. It's uh, Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson together. It's Emma Frost with... I want to say adamantium knuckles that say hell fire and they've got spikes on them and there's blood all over her, her knuckles and on her face. And it is wild. It is so damn good. And also does not happen in this book. Emma does not put on some metal knuckles and go punching, but it does see Kitty pride being a total badass. And there's even a quote at the beginning. A lot of these issues, there's a quote from a character sort of relating to what's going on in the story. And it's a quote from the the character Ogun, a terrifying ninja who trained Kitty Pride in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine limited series from the 80s, which is really good Chris Claremont series. And so it relates to this issue because Kitty has to put some skills to the test. But the book opens up with the Marauders floating in space. It's Emma Frost, Kate Pride, Sebastian Shaw, Bishop Pyro, and they are stuck in space. And just what Jerry does, as you give the credits, it's written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto, letters by VCs Corey Petto. The What Jerry does in sort of setting up this situation, it's so masterfully paced and, and explained of how they're going to get out of what should be a situation where they're all dead. You know, you got Iceman who uses his powers in certain ways, Sebastian Shaw and Bishop punching each other like two like frat bros, but utilizing each other's kinetic energy absorption and release powers is so brilliant. And then you've got Kate and Emma working together because they got to get back to a ship of theirs that was taken from them. And it's, it's a whole big thing in space, but it's mostly set in a very small space as the, the Marauders team has to figure out how the hell they survive. And then Kate going and being the one to infiltrate and get their stuff back. And it's, yeah, it's really set in two places, inside an ice bubble in space and inside a ship in space. And it's wonderfully drawn, funny as hell, as most of these issues are, even though it's exceptionally violent and intense. Kitty like slams through space into the ship and gets up and she says, I'm too angry to pass out. I'm going to kill that guy. And she like struggles to her feet and just goes after the bad guy. She's drinking booze and choking him out and headbutting him. And then you get to this point where Emma Frost then takes over the guy's mind. And so Phil Noto gets to draw this pretty badass space pirate 
doing the mannerisms of Emma Frost as she's like doting over Kate Pride. It's spectacular. I love this book so much. It is everything I want out of an X-Men comic right now. I love it. Now we're jumping into all the fresh floppies coming your way this week. And to those, we will be handing out a certain award like we always do. And now this is where my brain went. I went Halloween. I went long Halloween. Then I went bong Halloween. Then I went Dr. Bong. We're giving out the Dr. Bong award today, folks. And please, I implore you listeners, if anybody out there is bold enough to dress as Dr. Bong this Halloween, please send pictures to us. I would love that so much. So handing out the first Dr. Bong award to the creators behind Amazing Spider-Man number 77. This is written by Kelly Thompson with art by Sarah Pakelli. I mean, say no more. I'm already on board. And boy, oh boy, do they crush it. Ben Riley is Spider-Man. And we have stuff going on with Peter Parker still, obviously, and Aunt May and MJ, that whole drama. And then we have Ben's personal life. We have Ben and the costume. We have all of the swirling villainy that's going on around here. There's so much stuff happening. And it's just really cool to start at one point and see the direction that these creators want to take it in. Obviously, that goes to the Beyond Board as well. Now, this issue for me is sort of broken into three parts. And two of those are kind of touched upon in in the subjects that I just covered before. One of them, it definitely is not. And if you've peeked at the covers ahead of time in upcoming issues, maybe you've seen a glimpse of this, but uh, it still gave me a surprise, still gave me a shock what happens. I just got to say it's perfect for a book that's coming out on October 27th. Pick it up. It's like you can see when a comic, when people are making a comic and having fun and enjoying what they do. And that's one clearly of it. Another one is Black Widow number 12, another Kelly Thompson joint. But my Dr. Bong Award goes to Elena Casagrande here, who holy moly, free holies, just the work putting in here. Another book I could have easily picked this week. The first like three pages are Stab You in the Heart pure sadness, beautiful character work that Elena and Kelly do with Natasha and and some other stuff that I don't want to spoil. And then it's like get to business moments. There's a three panel sequence between Clint Barton and the newer character, Lucy, that is funny and quirky and like Clint is a doof stamp of approval in there. But then you get to a gala, the Golden Gate Gala. And you get to see Elena do these beautiful costumes. The one that she creates for Black Widow, it's stunning. It's so incredible. You get, of course, their beautiful fight scenes. There's so much going on in here. Uh, I will just say that there's a character in here that makes Natasha like visibly scared, which is something that is also very terrifying and intense. And I can't wait for more issues. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we have... The Darkhold Blade, number one. And folks, I am happy to report that these Darkhold issues and their tie-ins continue to not miss. What's really cool about this issue, though, is I feel like I could have given you a pretty concise definition about what each of these Darkhold books has felt like so far. They're creepy. They're mystical. There's a darkness to them. This issue has those elements, 
but it's also really light on its feet. It's really fun. It's at times really funny. Obviously, that's to be expected if you look at who's writing this, and that's writer Daniel Kibblesmith, who I'm very happy to see back at the House of Ideas. Obviously, we have rabid Blade fans out there who will be dying to get their hands on anything with Eric Brooks in those pages, and I think they won't be disappointed here. Yeah. Uh, we've got Moon Knight number four this week, and it's got a wonderful return of a character into Moon Knight's life from the West Coast Avengers. I will not spoil who if you've not seen the cover. I will say that I think my Dr. Bong award for this issue goes to a like post-fight conversation. There's some great action in here, some beautiful mood setting panels, pages, sequences, but it's the moments when Moon Knight goes after the bad guy and then has a breather and sits down with someone who knows him very well, who's like known him for a very long time and cuts through some of the veneer of all the like pomp and circumstance and like Mr. Knight stuff cuts to the core of who this person is. And it's like, you can see visibly, but also kind of feel the like breath that like letting down of a guard that Moon Knight has here. And I think that's it's an exceptional bit of character work amidst a really cool, gnarly, one-and-done superhero comic. These issues have sort of, they can exist on their own, but they've stringed together very well. This book has been really something special, each and every issue. Another book that has been super special is Spider-Woman. We are in 16 issues into the Spider-Woman series. No slowing down. I will say that I don't always have a good grasp of what our future plans are outside of like some bigger stories. So this felt like it could have been the end of the series and it was such a great wrap to this story. But then the end said to be continued with ninjas and the (laughs) pure joy that welled up inside me because I know we get more chaos caused by Carla Pacheco in the Marvel universe and Pere Perez. It is a beautiful issue. It is magic done by creators who are again, having a lot of fun working really, really well together and coming together to tell just a simple family-based story. You got Jessica, her brother, Jessica's niece, and the woman involved with Jessica's brother. And it's a lot of fighting and punching and kicking and biting and screaming and bones being broken and quipping. I think I will just give my Dr. Bong award to the relationship that Jess has with her niece. It's something that is really sweet and funny. I hope continues on. I hope we see them together more and more. There's a great bit of Jessica saying like, will you follow along in my footsteps, be a superhero? And she's like, no, I'm a 17 year old genius billionaire. I got to figure out how to fix my dad's company and I'm just going to do what I want. Um, She's rad. I hope we see more of her and her weird, weird dog. (laughs) Yeah. So much great stuff in there. And now we are jumping over into the realm of Star Wars. First with Star Wars Darth Vader number 17. This is Darth Vader War of the Bounty Hunters. Just Rewards. That's the name of the issue. I am just an effusive fan of Greg Pak's run on Darth Vader right alongside Raffaele Yenko. I've said it before. I feel like it is the idealized version of the sort of cross-era Star Wars storytelling that I love so much, where it can take influence from any moment in Star Wars history and fold it into the story, make it feel so organic, and not just organic, but elevate the moment that we're reading in the present and also sort of elevate the moments that we've seen in TV shows or in movies or in comics from the past. And that's a huge feat. So I am just an enormous fan of of Greg's work here. My Dr. Bong Award, though, 
It goes to Art Duo on this one, Raffaella Ienko and Alex Sinclair, who I think are just putting together a visual feast here. If you literally open the first three pages of this comic, which includes some of the most beautiful space battle stuff you'll see in comics all year, you'll instantly get it. And that's just where we're kicking things off. We're right into the story here. Some great Vader action as well, right alongside that. It is such a great read. There's so much in here. There's so much to love. Um, I'm going to continue on in the Star Wars realm with Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters. IG-88, number one. One, I was really excited to see writer Rodney Barnes in here, right alongside Gaiu Villanova, who's a Marvel mainstay nowadays. And really, the question for me when I open up this book is, well, how do you tell a story about IG-88? How do you take a character that seems like an action figure character and bring him to life. But of course they do it. It absolutely works on all fronts. And by the end of it, I'm like, oh my God, I love this guy. I really care about him. It's so good. And it, and it like had shades at the end for me of one of my favorite comics of the year, which was Beta Ray Bill number one, with this cosmic fairing bounty hunter droid who has to do a lot of stuff and has seen a lot of things. And I don't want to spoil it, but it's really, really something. Really, really out of nowhere, out of left field, punches landing right in my old domeski and just I'm picking myself up the floor, loving it. Hell yeah. All right, I'm going to round things out with our last two books. More Krakoan goodness with sword number nine. This one has a couple of gnarly things. There's one with a member of the original Alpha Flight. And like looking at him, I was like, how dare you? And you'll you'll see it when you get to it. But I, I'm very excited to see what happens in the next issue of Sword. Sword is the book about the X-Men that are in space and sort of trying to figure out a whole bunch of stuff and forge mutant kind deeper into the cosmic part of the Marvel Universe and, and prove that Earth, Arako, and mutant kind in particular are at the forefront of technology and, and culture and everything and should be recognized as a major interstellar power. So with all that said, we get a visit from the Shi'ar to Arako, aka Mars, here, and there's a, a wonderfully horrifying fight sequence in here where the Imperial Guard just, come on, y'all, get your stuff together. And I think my Dr. Bong award goes to the moment that everything changes for them and just the way it's drawn and, and how it's set up. And it's just this like, you can almost hear the like uplifting music. It's so good. Uh, and our last new book of the week is Wolverine number 17. This book, it's another Benjamin Percy book full of poison with characters getting into some nasty stuff. Wolverine is He's in this issue, but it's mostly about the FBI agent that Wolverine has been working with and palling around with and whose daughter Wolverine has helped sort of save. His name is Jeff Bannister. And so it follows Jeff as he's following a lead and, and he's trying to help Krakoa. But every which way you turn, something is going against Krakoa and Jeff is getting caught up in the middle of it. So it's this really tightly paced, really exceptionally done thriller. It feels like a, a great thriller as you're following one thread and then you bounce over and you see Wolverine going over here, but then there's chaos over here and somebody's in trouble over here and all this stuff. And at the same time, Blob, aka Fred J. Dukes, is doing some amazing karaoke over here. It's so dang good. The last couple of pages that like 
level of tension ramps, 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 exceptional, exceptional Wolverine comics. That's what we have for new comics coming your way this week. So much stuff to love in there. And hey, if your eyes uh, have been loving going horizontally uh, across pages, oh boy, just wait till they go vertically, my man, with Infinity Comics on Marvel Unlimited. There are a ton this week. Obviously, some of the best, including Deadpool. You got Jeff. You have Ghost Rider. Venom, Carnage, X-Men, and then two number ones this week, a spine-tangling Spidey Infinity comic. How great is that? As well as Mighty Marvel Holiday Special Halloween with the Rhino. That's one that Ryan and I read just the title of and instantly started cracking up. It's so good. So damn good. Also on Marvel Unlimited this week, plenty of other great books. Captain Marvel number 30, which we uh, are big fans of. The first issue of the Moon Knight series, which come on. Also, Thor Annual number one. If you have the opportunity, read it on a nice big tablet or computer screen with the ability to zoom in because it is full of amazing details. Now looking over towards the collection section, if you want to chomp on it all at once, we have so much great stuff here. Uh, we have Children of the Atom by Vita Ayala. That's volume one is coming your way if you've been waiting for that one to hit trades. We also have Black Widow by Kelly Thompson, volume two, I Am the Black Widow, one of the best books around. And then also we have something like Thor by Jason Aaron, the complete collection, volume four, obviously one of the finest runs in comics over the last several years. So check it all out with collections. Yeah. All right. With that all in mind, fire up your Marvel Unlimited, get ready and get yourself reading Green Goblin, the 1990s series. It's very of its time. There's a lot of, you know, hip 90s references in there. There's a lot of it that's tied to the Onslaught crossover. We had a blast with it. We had a, an even better time talking about it with Steve Orlando, writer supreme, who's on the show right now. Tucker, wipe that smirk off your face because we've got to have a real serious conversation with a real serious man. Joining us now on the podcast is Steve Orlando, Marvel Comics writer. I don't know why I have tagged you as a real serious man, but I like it. How do you feel about that, Steve? <laughs> I mean, you're probably one of the first people to ever say that about me. So, I mean, it's time. I mean, I do have a crying Roy Batty in my background, so my office is very... <laughs> That's how you know we make art in this office. Steve, thanks so much for talking to us today. Before we dig into what we're reading today, which is Green Goblin, A Lighter Shade of Greed, which is the Green Goblin series from 1995, the way I really like to kick things off is to get some background info on you, where you grew up, when you started reading comics, what your local comic shop was, if you were going at that time, when you started reading, all that good stuff. Sure. So I'm from central New York, Syracuse originally. And it's funny, my first comics were all Marvel comics. You asked what my local store was. Well, I didn't have one for a long time. There were stores in Syracuse, but they were like in the city and I live in the suburbs. So my first local store and first comics were the Syracuse flea market. Uh, it was actually West Coast Avengers 16, which was a tale of two kitties, a Hellcat and Tigra fighting over the original cat outfit against Tiger Shark. And I was sort of following books in and out, basically like what I could find at flea markets and things like that. So it's not as if I was a regular reader, but not a sequential reader, because it was more like, you know, what can I find? 
And then we did start getting comics at my local Walden Books, another blast from the past. But yeah, my first book I bought off a rack uh, was the Spinner Rack in Walden Books. And that was the middle of the clone saga. And it was when Ben Riley invents impact webbing to defeat Venom. Tom Lyle drew the issue, I can tell that, which was prescient for me because I actually uh, got to work with Tom finally just before he passed last year. And he was one of the first guys I actually pitched a comic series with back when I was like 14. But anyway, Tom also drew my first book that I bought off a rack, but I was following stuff at Walden Books. And then I think we finally got a dedicated comic store sometime in the late 90s. And that's when I started reading stuff on the regular. I think back then, that was the Joe Kelly, Steve Siegel run of X-Men. And as would happen, those two guys ended up being my main mentors in comics. So a lot of weird, like dancing around, like regular reading because of where I could find books. But like most people my age, I was always like an X-Men guy. But then after that, it's all these obscure things like monochrome vision, red pantsuit, Hank Pym. I have a Scarlet Spider hoodie I currently wear with the sleeves cut off to the gym. So like my fandom is esoteric after all the easy answers, I guess I would say. You pitched at 14 with Tom Lyle. Is that what you had said earlier? You pitched a comic. Who did you pitch a comic to? And how did you as a 14 year old get Tom on board for this pitch? Oh, uh, so what did we pitch? We pitched Nightmaster at DC. It did not obviously go anywhere, but I started trying to break into comics when I was 12. So I did already know people at DC. They just thought, you know, I was sure I was going to be like the gym shooter of comics and that did not come to pass. I did not start working for them at 15. But, you know, to me, knowing that and knowing that like Levitt's broken at 17, I was like, this is totally doable. I actually think I contacted Tom just off his website. But yeah, we put together a Nightmaster pitch, and I still have that art on my computer today, especially now that he's passed. I hold on to it. But him, along with like Siegel and Kelly, were some of the first guys that really took a chance on me uh, and tried to get me into this show we call comics. You're talking about breaking into comics and looking to break into comics, being really active in that way at such a young age, really makes me wonder, like, when did you realize that you wanted to be a writer, that maybe even wanted to create things yourself in general? Was that as instantaneous as the first time you picked up a book and it started to make sense to you? Or were there other factors at play that made you realize that you wanted a hand in this kind of thing? Well, I liked the sort of wild art and stories of all these characters since I was young, but it wasn't really until I started reading more of like the bullpen bulletins and things where I realized, that, oh, this is a job that people can do. And there were two major things where I leaned in. One actually was, it wasn't bullpen because it was DC, but there was this write-up about how everybody came together to sort of make the plan for Electric Superman. And I was just fascinated by that whole process. And that's when I realized that I probably wanted to get into the writing side uh, just because I can do visual art, but it takes a long, long time. And I was fascinated by just the, the ideation that they talked about there. I was already following comics then and thinking about it. And I sort of like, Went back and forth, but then a couple of years later, you guys did the Nuff Said event in like 2000 or 2001. And I was already kind of thinking that I could do it. And I was like playing around with, do I want to draw? Do I want to write? And that's when you, you all the scripts are published in the back. And that's probably the first time I saw a real comic script written out because they published Grant's script for the new X-Men issue. And I was all the way on board then when I just saw the possibilities of what you could do. And I'd already been, like I said, toying back and forth. I was a big cross-gen guy as well. Uh, and so those, I think maybe Barb Kiesel had already sent me a couple scripts to read and things like that so I could learn the format. But when I finally saw, like, as a reader, my idol talk about how they did a story that I considered great, which was The Quiet Psychic Rescue in Progress, I knew for sure this was, like, the right course. I already had my toe in, but when I saw the sort of first possibilities of what you could do... I was all the way in. 
the collaborativeness and the creativity like was always sort of what I was pushing towards. And that came from the first little looks I got in the late nineties of seeing behind the scenes stuff. We have a little bit buried the lead here uh, because you're relatively new to Marvel Comics. Obviously, you've had a career doing a lot of comics, but new to Marvel Comics over the last year or so, mostly. And uh, we just recently announced a brand new project with you. Before we even get into Green Goblin, tell us, who are you going to hurt in Marauders? <laughs> oh, man. To get the opportunity to step in there and not only follow up on what was already one of my favorite books with Marauders under Jerry... It's a huge vote of confidence. It's a huge honor. And also, like, Marauders was always going to be the book for me. Folks who know me know that I'm a friend of Jose Andres, who does a lot of, like, disaster relief and things like that. And I've been there. I went to Panama City after it got obliterated in this hurricane, and I did hands-on disaster relief there. So for the X-Men folks to come to me and not only say that we'd like you to join what is one of the hottest offices and, and publishing lines within the industry... But to do a book about mutant rescue when this is something I've lived myself, not the mutant side, obviously, incredibly exciting. And we're going to do that. We're going to take what I've seen and we're going to take my love of X-Men comics. And I think we're really going to surprise people. You'll see that in the annual when we introduce a mainline version of what I think is one of the most iconic AU villains that X-Men have ever seen, but has never really touched the present. Amazing, amazing redesign by David Baldion, amazing art on the interior for what's coming there with by Chris Young. And then when the team debuts, it's just such an amazing mix. You know, you've got classic Marauders members. You have Kate Pride, who's had such an amazing sort of personal revolution under Jerry, where she is everything she used to be, but is also stepping out even more so than ever before as a badass. And I don't want to say as a badass and as a hyper-confident leader for the first time, because, you know, she did face a giant bullet through the planet. Uh, you know, she's, she has been uh, someone to reckon with for a long, long time. But also the swagger that she has now, her dealings with Shaw, everything that happened between her and Emma, everything that happened at the end of the ongoing run now. It's just a great time for her to take that and push that confidence forward. And a lot of it is inspired not just by, you know, my own being uh, a wild mouth type of guy, but also the things I saw on the ground with my friends doing disaster relief, where you have this bureaucracy and you have these forces saying, oh, well, you can't do this. And we say, well, we're going to go do this anyway. That's the core of the new Marauders book. As Pride says in the first issue, they go where they're needed, not where they're wanted. And as tensions rise in the Marvel Universe, I mean, she's got a fresh team She's got a refocused mission and there are people, like I said, that maybe she hasn't worked with before, along with her standbys that she's had from the previous team. It's her and Bishop. It's Tempo, a character that I'm so excited to continue spotlighting uh, that Jerry did amazing work with. It is Somnus, who we introduced in the Marvel Voices issue. Another great moment to be able to work with him again. And not just with him, but with Dakin and Aurora, who formed this little fun triumvirate of people. Uh, you know, Dakin has just brought him essentially catching a favor to get Somnus resurrected. But now he has this new life and he wants to do something with it. So when Pride comes to him with a chance to not only pay forward his second chance, but see the world as himself for the first time, he's automatically on board. We also have icons like Psylocke. Icons, as I said, like Bishop. Bishop, someone I've loved since I was a kid. With that team, we have an eighth member that I can't spoil here, but the revelation of the eighth member of the Marauders kicks off a mystery that is not going to just be huge for this book, but what the Marauders are going to discover in this first arc shakes everything you know, not just about them, not just about the Shi'ar, but it's going to matter to the entire X-Men line as a whole. So it's going to be a foundational book. 
It's going to blow your faces off in ways that you wouldn't expect from me because I haven't done a big rescue book pretty much ever in my career. And it's going to be something you can't miss when it comes to the overall X-Men line as a whole, because this is going to reveal secrets of mutants history that have only been teased at so far in Jonathan's run. You know, we saw in Hawksbox small lines that he does mean so much where you find out that Apocalypse is the first mutant of the second generation. Well, the eighth member of the Marauders comes to them and says, okay, well, what if we had a chance to save all of the first generation? Uh, and that's where our story kicks off. Hell yeah. First of all, wow. Also, what a comics pro we're talking to here. I mean, that's somebody who knows how to pitch a damn book right there. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so dip our toe a little bit into Green Goblin now. Green Goblin 1995. It comes at a very specific moment in the mantle of this character and who's holding it and the story surrounding it. So I'm curious to ask you about, you know, the first time you picked up this book, what you thought of it when you first read it. And obviously now it holds a special place for you to this day. And if you can quantify, maybe if it's emblematic of something core to what just turns you on as, as a creative, as a writer. Sure. Green Goblin. So it was a huge issue and a huge book for me. And, and I think a lot of it comes from, in my case, you know, this is maybe the first book because of when I started buying comics, this is maybe the first book where I was truly in on the ground floor. For me, you know, we like to say every book is someone's first book and things like that. That was the case for this for me. It wasn't my first comic, but it was my first like number one where I was getting on board and learning someone's journey from the starting line. And for me, that was Phil Urich. You know, uh, I'd already liked Green Goblin because Green Goblin is awesome. Probably my favorite, one of my favorite Marvel villains. You know, I had an experience with this book that the same experience I think folks had reading like Ms. Marvel 1 or something like that. We're like, oh, not only is this character like me, but here I'm like going on this journey with them. It's not like I have to go back and read 300 issues of Spider-Man, which, you know, I went and did anyway, because that's a, a different experience that I love. But I was with this person every step of the way. You know, I was incredibly invested when Phil discovered all the goblin gear and got a chance to be a hero. Even though everybody underestimated him. I felt like I was, you know, like there, there's that energy there. And so I identified with him and I identified with his chance to really build this, this secret life of adventure. And I like that there was, <laughs> to be frank, like it's one of the first books where you loved the character, but he wasn't like automatically a success. Like half of this Green Goblin book is him getting his ass kicked by people, whether it's Hobgoblin. Or later, of course, like, I mean, you look at how he finally goes out and he basically gives his all to take out one sentinel, something that Wolverine does with his eyes closed, you know? And that's not me nagging on the character. I actually loved that as a perspective. It was, it was a great window into like a street level heroism while still maintaining fun and that aspect of learning what's special about your abilities. And little fact, I learned the word maniacal from the cover of Green Goblin 1 because it was the first time I'd ever seen that word. So that's the real reason I love it. Look, comics teach us always. Definitely maniacal, Green Goblin 1, painted cover. I want to say McDaniel painted the cover too, even though I don't often think of him as a painter, but I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Scott McDaniel. I had never read this run and seeing the Scott McDaniel, I was like, man, he's so freaking good at this time. And this is him shortly after his Daredevil run, probably a couple months after Daredevil, which it's such a great Daredevil run, but he does, you know, most of the run. And then he, he goes off and he leaves us for the distinguished competition where he, he does, you know, even more prolific runs on his Nightwing stuff. So good and, and beyond. But yeah, I was, I was super psyched to just get a, a whole 
like heaping host of Scott McDaniel art at this time period. His line work, his shading, his use of blacks, his mood throughout all this. And like sometimes his eyes, the way he draws eyes reminds me of the way Joe Casada drew eyes back in the 90s. And that's a very like obscure little thing. But if you, there's some panels I was like, that's a great like 90s eye right there. All bugged out, like freaked out by what's going on. But it was fun to, to read. Uh, we should give the credits for most of this run. Uh, it was written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Scott McDaniel, alongside Kevin Kobezik. Uh Derek Robertson has some work in there, and Josh Hood. A uh, whole host of colorists and letterers in there, and edited by Tom Brevoort, who, gosh, what, what year did this come out? This was mid-90s, so 1995. Old Tom Brevoort. He's got his hands in everything. But yeah, it was it was real cool. And I don't know, did either of you pick up on how many, like, topical, timely references? Yes. I was like, oh, man, they are just hitting that hard, like, pushing it that he's like a, a hip young 20-something, which I had a blast reading that. The emotional arcs, I think, are timeless, but there are definitely things that you're like, oh, this is... So Phil Yurick is 55 years old now, if he was alive now, right? Because this definitely did take place 30 years ago. He's, it is wild. Uh, what's so striking about this book is, I don't know, I feel like someone might pick up this book and be like, oh, this is a 90s book. It looks so 90s. But I don't think that's true. Like, this is a really striking looking book, even for the time, I feel like. And, you know, I think it's kind of chaotic. It has like a lot, just a ton of energy to it. Even the panel layout, the structured like sound effects, so much to it which I really enjoyed. And I felt like placing it in its context even was like kind of helpful to appreciate that even more because looking back on it, I feel like you might make certain assumptions. But what do you remember like where you were in terms of your relationship with comics, Steve, at the time where you could pick up a book and say, you know, have an artistic appreciation for it like this at the time? Or were you just still like raw? I'm in the story. I'm loving it. You know what I mean? Barely even looking at the credits still. It was probably soon after that I got to notice specific things like the art. Like I was definitely still just like in it, rooting for Phil. I mean, I can, without even looking up the book or rereading it as I did before this, I can still picture the opening spread of the last issue where his mask is all just demolished. And it was gut-wrenching for me because of course I, I was just begging in my mind for him not to have to retire. But I think soon after, um, I was back and forth in my readership between major companies, but then I came back on the topic of art. And when I really started to notice it, I came back when Grant launched X-Men. But to what you were saying, Tucker, at the time, I couldn't imagine that it wouldn't look like I'd never seen quietly before. And so when I got the first issue, I didn't know what the hell was going on because I expected it to look like Porter and John Dell, because surely that's what a Grant Morrison blockbuster looks like. And so I had spent like a year, because this was like, you know, basically pre-internet, building up that, oh my God, the X-Men, it's going to look like Porter and Dell, and it's going to be like these thick, like milkman type, I don't know why I describe his art that way, but anyway, <laughs> those types of people. And then I got it and it was quietly, and I was like, what in the hell is going on? And of course, like, then I learned that Frank is one of the greatest living comic artists, and it didn't take long, if not the greatest. But that, you know, I can tell you that's probably the first time I at least had an art expectation and then I had an art gut punch, but soon learned that I was a fool and learned to appreciate different styles. And I love quietly to this day. And by the way, 
I also still love Howard Porter. It's one of the great tragedies so far of my life that we haven't gotten to really do a longer collaboration. So I also think Howard is incredible. You've mentioned some really great runs. Are there other runs that have influenced you or stuff that you go back to as a, even just as a fan? Oh, I mean, there definitely is. As you might expect, they're going to be weird ones. I mean, my favorite book ever is Flex Mentallo, but that's only four issues. But there's also some weird deep cuts, again, as you might expect in this run. Like, I love Cully Hamner's run on Firearm. It's James Robinson and Cully. I knew the first person would come to me. And it very much is like a proto-Starman for folks who read it. Not that the powers are the same, but the delivery and the storytelling methods are very similar. And I actually do. Not only do I love that book and return to it, but because it has been collected, I made my own nerd hardcover of it. One of three things I did that with. The other one is the Paroback Justice Society which everyone should read regardless of affiliation, just because Mike Parabek was an amazing, amazing artist that we lost too soon in the 90s. And uh, then I have a hardcover I made of Flex Mentello before it finally did get collected. But there is more, too. I love the 2099 line. And that's not to say that some of the references aren't showing their age, but so much of it also hasn't. You know, I went back and read X-Men 2099's first trade paperback, probably even on Unlimited, based on it being in the past year. and so much of it is so ahead of its time and forward thinking and the way it looks at society and the way it looks at, at what might have happened between the Gulf of Xavier and Cheyenne. I love that run. I love the, the Spider-Man run. I still love West Coast Avengers, you know, if you really want to get deep in it. Oh, and also like probably one of the best comics westerns ever, Ostrander's Blaze of Glory, something I actually read a lot. And these are probably not the books you expected me to be saying, but those are the answers. Like, I love that. I, of course, have the X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold collections, which is the Siegel and Kelly run of X-Men. I was also really a big fan, specifically talking about X-Eras, the Australia era, you know, that when you had Sylvester, you had Portacio. Wills is one of the nicest guys in comics. So I follow him around anytime he shows up. But I love, love, love those runs. I also specifically, because it was around the same time, I'm very We'll go back and read Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, which is another grant joint with Jay Lee. Mostly just because like that panel where like thirsty Namor shows up at Sue Storm's apartment, it's just like sex god Namor showing up and Sue only being able to manage like uh, I'm married is <laughs> such a, a classic moment. Oh, and here's also a deep cut that I have not reread recently, but I specifically been searching for. And if people listen to this and have one and present me with this at a con, I will give you a lot of free stuff. Do you remember the prose novel, Spider-Man, The Venom Factor? Something I reread numerous times in elementary school. It's a novel about Spider-Man and Venom. And I actually have been ferociously trying to get myself a copy as an adult. But I haven't been able to find it yet, or at least for a reasonable price. But that is uh, that is not in my, oh, I go back to it all the time, but it's on my, I would love to go back to it uh, if I can ever find one. First, two thoughts. One, uh, we're talking about Marauders, but down the line, please, can we get a Steve Orlando written Namor sex god title <laughs> series? I would really appreciate that. Secondly, to take this as a, a quick springboard uh, out of the comics world, I'm curious because, as you noted right before we started recording, <laughs> there's a great picture of a crying Roy Batty right behind you. I'm personally interested. Do your really deep cut tastes apply to all media? Like if I would ask you about your favorite movies, would you give the similar kinds of answers or is that specific to comics? And and then in the same way, in, in, a, in a broader sense, 
creatively speaking, and, and when you were growing up in the same way we were talking about comics, what other media were, were really impactful on you? Um, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I don't seek something out because it's obscure. I just tend to latch on to strange things. So within certain fields, probably is the answer uh, as far as my interest being esoteric. I mean, and this is also just because I myself am a madman. You know, like Dr. Manhattan is my favorite character from Watchmen. And that is usually not the case. Usually people like the human characters, not the ones that struggle with humanity. And in the same way, like Tulkas and Gandalf are my favorite Lord of the Rings characters. And, you know, most people like Aragorn or, again, one of the people that is not completely detached from human existence. So I'm really just telling you more about myself. And honestly, on my list, I would love to do a living tribunal thing at some point. I also talk about omnipotent characters. So it depends. You know, I do like a good schlocky, you barely knew it existed 80s action movie. So maybe like Red Heat, for example, uh, Jim Belushi and Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Brandon Lee Dolph Lundgren movie. Showdown in Little Tokyo, maybe, and then The Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. I forget the exact name, but it's yeah. certainly, few people know that movie exists, but it's a masterpiece. Oh, and also Shang Tsung, Kerry Tagawa is in it, which automatically makes it good. <laughs> Steve, our interests align very heavily. Are you a wrestling fan? I'm wearing a Macho Man Trunks sweatshirt as we speak. <laughs> I'm a wrestling fan. It's, I mean, the storytelling is very similar to comics and the behind the scenes and the struggle that aspiring wrestlers go through is very similar to what aspiring creators go through. So I am a big fan as anyone who sees me trolling WWE on every Monday on Twitter knows. But yeah, I mean, the big thing is that I think these sort of like anything goes storytelling uh, and sort of beyond soap opera, like gonzo storytelling. I mean, obviously has a home in comics too. So I've, I was out for a long time, but I'm back in now and, you know, I don't do anything halfway clearly. So here we are. Amen to that. Um, yeah, we're not we're not going to talk about wrestling too much to the delight of Tucker and uh, producer Jasmine, who shake their head every time I bring up wrestling. But um, D-Man, future comic, future Eisner Award winning comic from me. Please. They're like, oh, Steve, welcome to Marvel. We have a gay ex-super soldier pro wrestler. What could you possibly do at this company? You heard it here first and probably last, but still. I, I really, I appreciate that so much. I used to work at Wizard Magazine and so they would put someone's picture on an action figure at the beginning of every issue for a joke and, and to go with some of the content that's in there. And so they were going to have me once and I, they were like, who should we put you with? I said, D-Man immediately. I was like, I, I love D-Man. That's got to be me. And so there's a picture of me, my face with the, with the mustache on like a custom made Mego D-Man. So I get it. Well, listen, I both made custom figures, read Toy Fair and read Wizard back in the day. As a matter of fact, I feel like I'm one of a whole generation of people who basically wanted to get into comics so you could be on that damn top 10. And then the magazine went under before I got in. I know. And I, I may never recover. Like, I, 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 I wouldn't <laughs> be so boastful if I could have just gotten in that damn top 10, but I'm just making up for it my entire life. Yeah, I, having been in the meetings where we decided the top 10 writers and artists and, and all that stuff, it's fascinating stuff. I loved that time there. Yeah, I started at Toy Fair and then went over to Wizard. Let me, well, Ryan, let me tell you, uh, if, and for folks that know about Wizard, you talked about when I decided I want to get in. The big thing I didn't mention, which you might have been there when it happened, you might not have. There was a feature when Astro City was blowing up where Wizard had Music and Alex Ross design an arch villain for the Samaritan, and then take readers through their entire process, how you design an arch villain in a character sense, how you design one for a visual sense. And this led to the creation of the infidel. 
And to this day, I still think about the stuff that Kurt lays out in the, that article when it comes to creating like true arch villains for characters. It was so interesting to me and clearly stuck with me because it's been almost 20 years, over 20 years now, probably. And I'm still thinking about it. And actually, Kurt sent me screen caps of it. So I now finally, I've been looking for it for years. And I finally have the original piece on my computer. It's only like four pages. But like, A, Kurt is a genius when it comes to this stuff. And obviously, Alex was in his prime. And yeah, I mean, it's funny because that, you want to talk about why I'm here and the things that sort of push me on. I think about that character building article all the time. And I, you know, with that wizard, I mean, you can either blame wizard for me being here or thank them. That's up to you. You decide. Another thing I'm constantly referencing about Marvel in the early 90s. Honestly, like I don't understand how have we never met before because I've I've had that you decide gimmick those those voting things in my head forever. And back to the the wizard of it all and I will get off this topic. I'm sorry, Tucker. My first issue of Wizard number 8. Will's Portasio cover Bishop with this beautiful mullet and that uh the wizard uh, outfit motif. A friend of mine, a buddy Gene just sent me a copy of number 8 because I had lost it years ago. So I finally have my first issue of Wizard back in my hands. As long as I can find it. I don't know where I put it. Oh man, I'm waiting for you guys to like do the like mirror exercise where you both move your hands like perfectly <laughs> in sync and like just move in the same exact way. Uh it's it's great to hear. Um to jump back into Goblin before we wrap up, Steve, when you look back on this run and when you're rereading it, can you synthesize down like what made this such a memorable book to you? What keeps it, you know, in the rotation so many years later? Is that something that you can bring down to a core level like that, uh, that, that makes it your pick? Yeah, I think if you look at the other characters that I, I love, my writer dies, people like The Shadow, for example, who's probably my favorite character in Pulp Fiction. The core element and what you have here as well, it's, it's someone who's taking something, broadly speaking, taking something dark and turning it into something light. You know, this is a heroic take on the Green Goblin that is both, as the title says, the most maniacal hero in the Marvel Universe, but he is still taking either performative pathos or real pathos and turning it into something positive. And that is something that resonates with me kind of across the board, especially the fact that this specific version of this character has the lunatic laugh. You know, he is scary when he's in the goblin outfit. He's scary. But unlike Norman, who to me should be one of the most frightening people in the Marvel Universe when he's in that gear, he's making those of us that generally terrorize folks, he's terrorizing them. He's making those that make us afraid, afraid themselves. And that's why I love the shadow. It's why I love a lot of characters. Moon Knight is another example. Like this intimidation factor and this idea that that sort of gut primal fear that we as people feel when we're being preyed upon, well, here's someone who reflects that back on those that would victimize us. And there's a huge catharsis with that, you know, which is different than like a character like Cap, who I love as well. But the way you get to justice there is totally different than the way you do with a character like Green Goblin or with a character like Venom or Moon Knight, you know, like during the Lethal Protector era, I loved Venom because yeah, he was a guy who was going to make you just as like pants weddingly scared of him as you hoped other people as a bad person would be of you. And, you know, there's a comeuppance there that I guess I've always found appealing, but in a narrative sense, I find it appealing as well, because obviously it's always a challenge for us not to succumb to our, our darker urges. And here you have these characters that embrace them, but in a way that turns them into a positive. And so I think I couldn't have told you that when I was like seven or eight reading this, but I think there's a reason characters like this have always sort of been at the forefront for me. I mean, I broke on Midnighter, a guy turning his murderous impulses into a positive. So 
I think there is a very strong through line from here to there. One of the things that I really enjoyed in, in reading this series was the arc, the the feeling of completion that this, this series had. It's 13 issues, and you join Phil Yurik as he is sort of like finding himself, gets these powers, explores them. You know, some of the things we've been talking about, getting some some villains, see, having some team-ups, getting involved in different things, and then closing a chapter. It felt like... Oh, this is this is one character story. He has a, a history later on. He shows back up in Amazing Spider-Man numerous times. He gets murdered. He's been in loners. He's he's had his runs. But I felt that this was really cool. I'm really glad you brought this one to us, especially as someone who's pretty much completely missed it the first time around. Well, and Phil's arc afterwards, man, heartbreaking, but still extremely valid. You know, he's he's been trying to hold off from that side of his life for a long time, and eventually he succumbs. So is it a tragedy now? For now, because who really stays dead? As crushing as it was for young Steve to see that goblin gear in the trash, it was a still still a unexpected and I think beautiful arc for the character to say that, yeah, this isn't for everyone, ultimately. Agreed. It's a great read. And it, as much fun as it is to to talk about something like New X-Men on here or the other another book you mentioned, like Ms. Marvel, number one, you know, all, these kind of big storied series, it is really, really fun to, to have the opportunity to dive into something like this, which I feel like, you know, a reading club like this is like, when else are we going to have the opportunity to to bring that up out of the depths of history? It's really, really interesting stuff. Um, well, uh, Steve, I want to thank you for, for joining us so much. I think I might just, I might just leave and let you guys just continue on for like another three or four hours. Um, <laughs> Steve, are you into Transformers? That's the big question. Girl, I'm writing Transformers right now. King Grimlock <laughs> on the stands from IBW. I have so I'm way behind. I started read. I just I've got back into collecting Transformers this year <laughs> as we moved, and I started finding my old ones. So my office is full of them. But like, and I've just started reading. I'm, my plan is to read every Transformers comic I can. So I started at Marvel number one. So I'm. 23 issues in so far. <laughs> well, in about 20 years, you'll get to my Grimlock the Barbarian comics that are coming out as we speak. Yeah, no, I, I saw it and I was like, I got to go pick it up. Very proud of that work. And I guess the answer is yes. Big fan of Transformers. Uh, I guess that's the answer. Cried when Optimus Prime died. Never put together when I was a kid why Duke then goes into a coma only in the G.I. Joe animated movie. Ask me about Serpentor on my next appearance here. We'll get into it. I, I just watched Transformers 86 <laughs> in a theater on Sunday because uh, they re-released it. So kindred spirits, here we are. We got to wrap it up. Jasmine is saying we got to go. Steve Orlando, thank you so much. We are definitely going to have to have you back to talk about some wonderful stories here on Marvel's Pull List. Thanks, Steve. It's my pleasure. Thank you once more to Steve for joining us. I loved that conversation so much because that just truly feels like the reason this show exists. It's like yeah. Marvel's pull list exists. Sorry, Mummy's pull list exists for us to dive into the most specific moments in Marvel Comics history and talk about why we love it so much. So thanks again to Steve. That is it. That is us for this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bacala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And, you know, speaking of uh, mummies, um, I hope everybody knows that Brad Barton was the stuntman 
for Brendan Fraser on all the Mummy films. Um, he did all the stunts. He was he was also his like his his body double, so he did double 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 duty there. Um, Brad, truly a Renaissance man. Oh man, we love you, Brad. We love you, Brad. Beautiful head of hair, and guess what? That guy can drive a car on two wheels. Are there cars in the Mummy? Sure. Yeah, there are. There okay, are old timey cars. Yeah. Which Brad drove. <laughs> yes. Uh, in, he did. in any of the shots, you see him from behind. Absolutely. All right, I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. <laughs> this is Marvel. Your universe.